You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Fancy Bear gets busy in a sensitive German government network. Red Drop Android malware is built for blackmail. Intel issues another Spectre fix. The FTC reaches a settlement with Venmo over privacy, security, and availability of funds. The SEC is investigating a number of initial coin offerings. And Mr. Gates is no fan of cryptocurrencies. And it seems cryptocurrency mavens are no fan of Mr. Gates. I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, March 1st, 2018. The bears appear to have shown up in Berlin, and for that matter, in Bonn. German authorities say yesterday that they are investigating a cyber espionage campaign against federal networks. The attack was detected in December, but the threat actors are believed to have been present in the networks for about a year before they were discovered. The campaign is attributed, not officially, but by anonymous sources close to the investigation, to Fancy Bear, Russia's GRU military intelligence service. Deutsche Welle describes the network, the IVBB, which was the hacker's target, as a dedicated secure platform used only by, quote, the Chancellery, the German Parliament, federal ministries, the Federal Audit Office, and several security institutions in Berlin and Bonn, the former German capital where some ministries still have offices, end quote. Fancy Bear gained notoriety as the threat actor that snuffled through the U.S. Democratic National Committee, the International Olympic Committee, the International Anti-Doping Organization, French President Macron's campaign, and a large number of other targets of official Russian ire. This isn't the first visit to Germany, either. Fancy Bear is believed to have compromised Bundestag networks for more than a year. Security firm Wandera is describing Red Drop, a strain of Android malware distributed for the purpose of blackmailing its victims. Red Drop combines the functionality of spyware, Trojan, and data exfiltration. It's troublesome, but apparently not terribly sophisticated or difficult to guard against. If users take apps only from reputable sources and enable Google Play Protect, they're probably safe. Still, Android users take Red Drop as one more incentive to straighten up and fly right. Intel continues to address the Spectre and Meltdown vulnerabilities that have bedeviled its CPUs. It's issued new fixes for Spectre to Broadwell and Haswell chips. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission has reached a settlement with PayPal subsidiary Venmo over the company's practices. The root of the problem, according to the FTC, lay in Venmo's representation that funds transferred would be immediately available to their owners, when in fact such funds could be and sometimes were frozen while Venmo investigated underlying transactions. The FTC said this caused a number of customers undue financial hardship. The company was also in hot FTC water over its privacy and security practices, 
especially in the way it communicated those practices to its customers. Acting FTC Chair Maureen K. Olhausen drew a lesson for the financial sector as a whole. Quote, the payment service also misled consumers about how to keep their transaction information private. This case sends a strong message that financial institutions like Venmo need to focus on privacy and security from day one. End quote. It's common practice for software developers to rely on varying degrees of open-source software in their work. Rami Sass is CEO and co-founder of WhiteSource, a company that helps developers manage and secure their open-source assets. The default choice today is to not develop yourself what you can find in an open-source project, and that's a trend that we've seen develop over at least the last decade or has become extremely prominent over the last decade. It may have started two or more decades ago. But today, uh, every software engineering group anywhere that's working on commercial software is actually relying very, very heavily on open source components and spends just a small portion of their, uh, I wouldn't say time exactly, but they, uh, the minority part of their a software that gets shipped to the customer or gets deployed is actually a net new software or proprietary software that's being developed by your own engineers. More than 50% of it is uh, comprised of open source components, so much so that there's a big trend today talking about how software is composed and not written. So can you take us through what are some of the benefits and what are some of the potential vulnerabilities of uh, this approach? Right, so the benefits are enormous and fairly uh, well discussed in the sense that uh, it's the open source itself is uh, free to use, uh, readily available at, at large scale, usually very well maintained by the open source community and can save you a lot of work while still giving you very high quality product or very high quality results uh, very easily. So this, the benefits are primarily around saving time, saving money and saving energy while conserving all of these resources to really focus on the new innovative parts that you are now bringing to the world rather than having to do the same mundane task for the thousandth time that someone else has already done. On the risk side, there are some risks that all derive essentially from the fact that you are bringing in some third-party piece of software and embedding it into your own software and then uh, selling it or deploying it uh, out into the world as if it is your own. So you essentially become accountable for all potential issues that may be hiding in the open source uh, components. Usually they are not malicious. So we rarely, if ever, see cases where uh, people try on purpose to provide you with uh, faulty open source components. Although there are some stories from the espionage world from uh, certain countries I will not name, that may be doing some of these things as part of a sort of intelligence efforts. But besides those fringe cases, 
most of the problems are a, a derivative from the fact that open source is just software in its own right at the end of the day and it gets written by uh, human beings flesh and blood who are software engineers and may make the same kinds of errors that uh, people working on commercial software make and that in turn means that there will be or there are uh, several known security vulnerabilities in open source projects, there could be quality issues. And to add to those, there sometimes can also be legal issues in the sense that open source, while free, will always come with some strings attached. So you cannot really distribute code freely without attaching some kind of copyright waiver. And when people waive their copyright, they would normally add some terms and conditions under which they waive their copyright, which in turn become licenses. So all open source, just to be open source, needs to have some license attached to it. And uh, some licenses start adding additional conditions and requirements from the developers that if you don't uh, adhere to, if you don't pay attention to, could sometimes get you into into legal trouble. That's Rami Sass from White Source. The U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission has begun investigations into multiple ICOs. The Wall Street Journal reports the SEC has issued dozens of subpoenas to tech companies who've held token sales and their advisors. TechCrunch notes that the money raised in initial coin offerings amounted to $6 billion last year, and has already hit the $1 billion mark in 2018. $6 billion is far from huge, but it's not trivial either. Being a bit larger than the CIA's World Factbook estimate of the GDP of French Polynesia, Bermuda, Jersey, or Liechtenstein. And finally, Microsoft's Bill Gates is no fan of cryptocurrencies, which he sees primarily as modes of illicit funds transfer and money laundering, favorite financial vehicles of drug dealers, contraband peddlers, blackmailers, and other bad people. He takes it as read that the alternative currencies have blood on their hands. This week in a Reddit Ask Me Anything session, he said, quote, Right now, cryptocurrencies are used for buying fentanyl and other drugs, so it is a rare technology that has caused deaths in a fairly direct way. I think the speculative wave around ICOs and cryptocurrencies is super risky for those who go long, end quote. Alt-currency advocates reacted contemptuously, saying, as, for example, Bitcoin developer Udi Wertheimer did, that cryptocurrencies are no more and no less a cause of death than traditional cash has always been. The general rejoinder has been that cryptocurrency's salient feature isn't anonymity, but rather immutability and the ability to support trustless transactions. He may have more of a point about the riskiness of cryptocurrency speculation. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. 
Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com slash cyber. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He's from the SANS Technology Institute. He's also the host of the ISC Stormcast podcast. Uh, Johannes, welcome back. Um, you wanted to touch base today about the memcache denial of service situation here. What, do you, what can you share about that? Yeah, what's happening really is that uh, this is yet another one of these reflective denial of service attacks. Yeah, so what's happening here is that we do have uh, another UDP-based reflective denial of service attack. The culprit here in some ways is uh, one of these NoSQL databases called Memcache. Now, Memcache is a very simple database. As the name implies, it runs all in memory. With that, there isn't really any authentication or access control for it. Now, when you ever installed it, it usually only listens on the loopback interface in your system. And in a configuration file, it actually explicitly warns you not to have it listen on an open exposed interface. Uh, that's not firewall and such, but apparently, and well, probably no surprise here, people aren't <laughs> listening. The problem with this is memcache has a stat command or status command. Uh, when you send this command to memcache, it replies with essentially sort of a dump of its status, which is quite verbose. So this has been used in denial of service attack. The attacker will spoof a packet that appears to come from the victim asking for this status and uh, memcache will reply with a few kilobytes, in some cases, hundreds of kilobytes of data. Hmm. So this has been used to amplify this denial of service attacks and they have reached uh, the typical multi gigabit uh, sizes. And so how do you prevent this sort of thing? 
Well, if you find a memcache database exposed like this, well, first of all, fire whoever set it up like this, because <laughs> that's really sort of non-excusable. But uh, yes, you never really should expose memcache to the open internet. Like I said, you also expose all of your data because there is no uh, authentication for this database. It's often used sort of in web applications to hold session data and sort of more ephemeral uh, data. So certainly, you know, critical and confidential data. So never really uh, should be exposed. That's really the big thing here. Now, if you're at the bad end of one of these denial of service attacks, you can try and filter everything that's coming from source port 11,211. That's the port Memcache is living, listening on. But typically, you'll need some help from some upstream ISPs, some anti-denial of service a service that you need to hire in order to filter this traffic as far as possible away from your network. These attacks are so large with like you know, hundreds of gigabits per second that probably what you're doing on premise with your firewall won't really work. Hmm. All right. That's interesting stuff. Uh, Johannes Ulrich, as always, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.